Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Justin Lee Miller, hello. As is a uh, routine, we found out what you had for breakfast, and you're visiting New York. You had an everything bagel and iced coffee in the middle of freezing winter. So I feel like you've uh, <laughs> you've already been naturalized. Welcome to New York. How are you? Great, thanks. This is my eighth or ninth trip here this year. So oh, cool. That makes sense. I'm feeling a little bit more like a New Yorker. Cool, cool. You're you're in demand, Doctor Justin Lay Miller is a social psychologist and one of the country's leading experts on human sexuality. So happy to have you here. And he is currently a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the blog Sex and Psychology. Formerly, he served on the faculty at Harvard University and he lives in Indianapolis, which is where we met Yep. this fall-ish, where we were both on a panel about sexuality and censorship at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum. Do you go there often? That was my first and only so far time there. So it's a few blocks away from where I live, and that was the first time I was there. Uh, But I have actually donated to the Vonnegut Library before because I support their work in fighting censorship, especially with regard to writing, because I write about controversial topics. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, you write about controversial topics? (laughs) Like uh, this book that I have right here. Tell me what you want, the science of sexual desire, and how it can help you improve your sex life. I've read a lot of nonfiction books about sex. A lot of fiction books, too. A lot of fiction books that uh, that pretend to be nonfiction, as I'm sure you have as well. Mm-hmm. But there's something so modern, and by that I mean like of like truly of the moment in terms of the social psychology science of this book of all the things I appreciated about it, that was the number one thing that I appreciated about it because as I'm sure you have experienced, engage with and probably fight against in your work, there is so much confirmation bias in all kinds of media from books to podcasts to to news media about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so it's so refreshing to read something that is not only grounded in science, but is not just like, well, the DSM says this thing because we all know how problematic and, and pathologizing that can be. So you really so, so tell us about the study that is sort of the foundation of this book. So I wanted to do a large scale study of sexual fantasies and write a whole book about what that tells us, because there were a lot of unanswered questions I had about sex fantasies. And there's surprisingly little research on it, in part because it's hard to get funding to do sex research if you're studying anything other than STDs. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, that's very similar to it's hard to get funding for sex education unless it's about STDs. Right. Yeah. So I ended up conducting this survey of almost 4,200 Americans from all 50 states, ranging in age from 18 to 87. And they completed this massive survey of 369 questions. The the 69 wasn't intentional. But <laughs> <a lot>. Convenient. <laughs> just convenient, just coincidental. But so I was surveying them about what their biggest fantasy of all time is, 
hundreds of different people, places, things they might have fantasized about. Mm. And then I wanted to look at how that's connected to their demographic backgrounds, their personalities, their sexual histories, just to give this really comprehensive look at what our fantasies are and what they say about us. You talk about voyeurism. It's interesting. You you really actually define it as spying by nature, right? That you that you define voyeurism as the uh, in terms of the fantasy of voyeurism as having to do with the the person who is being watched is not consenting or unaware of the fact that you're being watched, right? Mm-hmm. But there is this voyeuristic thrill that I guess is consensual to reading the book, right? Where you are hearing about people's fantasies and you do quote them and people are very, in a lot of cases, unselfconsciously describing their fantasies. And it's really beautiful to see those so clearly because, I mean, I'm sure that people do censor themselves even when they are participating in a study, but probably less so than, there's probably less fear of judgment because ultimately it's anonymous and it's like hashtag for science, right? So so people maybe have more, are like more motivated to be truthful. Was there anything about the way that you designed the study that encouraged people to report not based on their own self-judgment? So I think anytime you're doing a study about people's deepest sexual fantasies or desires, there's always a concern that they might censor themselves or present themselves in a socially desirable way. Right. Uh, Or say what they think you want to hear. Right. And so I tried to go into it without prompting them to to, to give me what I want and rather to, to have them tell me what it is that they want. And one of the biggest ways we do that is to do as much as we can to ensure and guarantee anonymity mm. so that their responses can't be traced back to them. So, for example, not collecting any personally identifying information along with it. Um, and then also just when you're going to collect their biggest fantasy of all time, I did that at the beginning of the survey where they hadn't answered a whole bunch of questions about other things I I thought they might be fantasizing about. Mm. So I wanted to get it fresh without me influencing them. And if people were really responding in a socially desirable way, I probably wouldn't see that many taboo fantasies coming up. Right. And you saw a lot of them. A lot of them. And some of them were really, really intense. And, and, you know, I study sex for a living and I read a lot of fantasies. I hear a lot of fantasies. And and there were some in there that, you know, really did surprise me in, in the level of depth and detail that some people went into where they were writing pages about what their fantasy is like. Well, it's interesting, actually, when I think about the experience that I've had, not as a scientist, but as a sex worker, learning about people's fantasies, the question of the truthfulness about the fantasy often has to do with, is this person talking about this because what they actually want to do is get a rise out of me and see what my reaction is, which 
as long as there's a context for like that's what we're doing i'm fine like try to get a rise out of me i dare you (laughs) (laughs) but you know if if what somebody wants is to cross the lines of those taboos with someone they find attractive that's fine with me the thing that bugs me is when there's a false pretense where it's like i want to do this oh but what i'm really trying to do is like try to push your buttons and Mm -hmm. that is like manipulative and i can't go for that but it's interesting when you think about the folks that are responding to these questions in a social science test because even if what they're saying even if they're getting a thrill out of sharing it they're giving you the information the data that you want right so that's tricky good job (laughs) (laughs) yeah and people may have been and probably were turned on when they were filling out the survey. That's to, to be expected. And I know that that's also been a reaction that, that some people have when reading the book. Totally. And, you know, I was talking to someone not that long ago who said, I was hard for the first three chapters of your book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I take that as a compliment. So. Totally. Well, and I think it's a, it's a misnomer to think that we have to try to drain things of all the juice in order to talk about them seriously, or right. that if something is appealing to someone's, if something has the potential to appeal to someone's prudent interest, which, sorry to say, lots of, if this book tells us anything, it's that you can't control for that because, <laughs> right. like, it could, it could be anything. The the idea that if somebody is trying to, uh, is trying to, or incidentally appealing to someone's prudent interest, then we can't have a serious scientific conversation about it. That we can't have a serious political conversation about it. That's I think that's totally false. So I love that you've also created something that is that is potentially stimulating or sexy or erotic and also very like it's definitely for a popular audience, right? Right. It, but at the same time, I recognize people will have a wide range of reactions to the material that's in there. Yeah. For, for some people, it's it's shock or disgust yeah. and, and not sexual arousal. And that's fine. No yeah. matter what your reaction is, um, it, I still think there's a lot in there that you can learn and take away from it. Just don't let, if you have a negative reaction, don't let that stop you from continuing to engage with the material. Also, you bring your psychological background to the fact that sometimes repulsion and attraction go together. Right. (laughs) And you really break that down. But we can come back to that. What can your discipline of social science teach us about sex that all of the other kinds of media and even art and education out there about sexuality can't or in some ways has has failed to. So a lot of what's out there in the media is a lot of people who are speaking based on their personal opinions and experiences. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think that's valuable. There's a place for it. But what they're saying might not necessarily be generalizable to a broader audience. It might not apply to them because if you have somebody who had, say, unusual experiences, then you know maybe it's a smaller number of people to whom the, their insights would apply. So I think what the the social science research can do is we can take data from a much larger group of people, we can get a much broader sense of what's going on and and say how fantasies might be different for different segments of the population and who tends to have better versus worse experiences. So I think we can just make broader global insights Mm -hmm. uh, based on, on, on the data rather than just one person's views. But also what a lot of people do is say, this is my experience, and then they overgeneralize it. Right. Which is also a problem. And that's where I get concerned, too. And and also a lot of uh, 
people who speak in the media, I have great respect for them. I think they do great work. But a lot of them, I think, go a little bit too far in telling people what they should do. Being prescriptive, right. Right. And so what I try to do is uh, say that, you know, here, here's the data, here's here's the evidence. There's no one size universal rule that, that everyone should do, except everyone should talk a little bit more about sex. Uh, but in terms of how you go about it, which fantasies you might act on, how you might broach the subject with your partner, it's so highly individualized. I'm wondering, because you talk about it a lot in the book, if you can share your insight into why we want what we can't have. and But also why we want the things that we are told that we're not supposed to want. Right. So this ties in with a concept psychologists have written about for a half century or more. It's it's something called reactance. And it's basically this idea that when you're told you can't do something, it makes you want to do it even more. <laughs> and it, it's not just with regard to sex. It's, it, it's anything. It's when you have this restriction placed on your personal freedom, it makes people want to rebel yeah. against that. And so what I see in my data is that the people who have the most restrictions placed on them in terms of their sexuality are, are fantasizing the most about taboo things, the things they're told they shouldn't be doing. Can you give an example? <laughs> so, uh, for example, self-identified Republicans uh. tended to have more taboo sexual fantasies. They're fantasizing more about infidelity, voyeurism, exhibitionism, just kind of across the board, uh, a lot of the taboos. Uh, I actually wrote an article about the, the politics of sexual fantasies and desires a couple of weeks ago for Politico and uh, did kind of a deeper dive into that than I do even in the book. And it, it really caught on. People resonated a lot with that idea. So what do Democrats <laughs> fantasize about? The the thing that Democrats fantasize World about. World peace. Yeah. <laughs> no, that didn't come up in my survey. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody got off on that at some point. But, uh, you know, if you can think of it, someone has been turned on by it. But uh, Democrats, the thing they fantasize more about than Republicans was BDSM. Mm. And I think part of that might also be related to this taboo idea, this this reactance idea, because when you're a Democrat, you you tend to espouse these ideals of equality. And so right. maybe playing with power differentials uh, might be something that becomes especially appealing when it, you know, you're told that the playing field should be level and everything should be equal. And you're working so, you know, not to generalize about Democrats, but even just like people on the like more like leftist or liberal side of the spectrum tend to be fighting really hard, whether it's feminism or racial justice to 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 like let the scales fall from their eyes and you like see the oppression all around you and you're you're really you're trying to rectify it. You're trying to rectify it in your own lives. You're you're shaking people and saying, don't you see that this thing is is making things worse? And so it it totally makes sense that then the relief from that or the exploring the shadow side of that, which is also something that you talk about, the idea of the shadow side might be something that leftists find erotic well that's that's what the pattern in the data would, would suggest <laughs> see <but. laughs> this is so refreshing um uh yeah and then it also makes sense that folks on the right who are trying so hard to be like what we need in order to have a functioning society i'm trying to be really generous here it, it with how <laughs> with how <laughs> that kind of ideology is uh is like we want things to have order and the, the these are the these are the rules of propriety and like how we should treat one another and the values that we should have and everyone should have if everybody just 
played by these rules, everything would be fine. So it makes sense that then in their like erotic life where they're looking for catharsis, where they're looking for relief, where they're looking to break that tension, that they would want to be like, but what if I broke the rules? Right. (laughs) So do you see a difference in how liberals and conservatives feel about their fantasy lives? Absolutely. Uh, With self-identified Republicans, with those who reported religious affiliations, I I see that there's a lot more shame and guilt Mm. that's also tied into their fantasies. And something else that, that might explain why they tend to fantasize more about the taboo is that with all of those restrictions placed on them, with that shame and guilt, they might be engaging in thought suppression as a way to try to deal with their uncomfortable sexual thoughts. Mm. And when people try to repress their thoughts, we know that this has the ironic effect of actually making them think about it even more. I have noticed that too. <laughs> so it just it sort of creates this obsessive preoccupation that ultimately is, is damaging for people's mental health because they're thinking about things they don't want to think about that they think they shouldn't be doing and and it's upsetting and distressing to them and it seems like it leads to obsession right or maybe even like that that i am i'm not a scientist or a doctor uh but it, it does seem like compulsive behavior can come from that kind of obsession i mean I've, i feel like i've it's in the book and i've, I've heard you speak to also the idea that we have about like sex addiction and porn addiction can you can you maybe speak to how that may be more linked to the shame that people feel that they shouldn't want these things rather than the the things aka like desire or porn or anything like that like actually being something that should be treated like a controlled substance that is like causing a public health crisis right and we, we see in this country increasingly we have state legislatures who are declaring porn to be a public health crisis mm-hmm. and porn is the cause of uh, not just unhappy marriages and divorce, but also it's causing erectile dysfunction in men. It's causing uh, all kinds of other sexual and relationship problems and broader social ills. And what we see in the data is that for people who identify as uh, a, a porn addict, mm. if we use that term, that these people tend to have a lot of moral qualms about their porn use. And right. so it's not really the porn that's the problem for them. It's the way they feel about the behavior they're doing. And and so it, it's really a, an issue of morality rather in, in moral conflict than it is with, with the porn itself. That is so fascinating. Can you talk about how you define BDSM and maybe a little bit about the difference between how you define it in your work versus how it has been defined in the medical and social psychology field maybe for decades or centuries. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I, I think you're kind of hinting at, you know, maybe what the DSM says about this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and in, in general, I think a lot of therapists and medical professionals uh, feel very comfortable pathologizing all kinds of things that might fall under the BDSM umbrella. Absolutely. And there's actually some papers I can point you to where we see therapists have biases Mm. about BDSM and they think that people who engage in it are 
inherently unhealthy right. in, in, in some way. It, it's not just with BDSM. We see this with, uh, for example, say consensually non-monogamous relationships. There's a lot of right. monogamous biases among among therapists. And so when they have patients who are coming in who are, say, engaged in swinging or they're engaged in BDSM, the presumption on the part of a lot of therapists is that that's messed up and needs and needs to change. That that's the problem is that, that they're coming in for is that we need to stop this behavior. Or we need to stop whatever is the impulses that are leading to this behavior. Right. And I think that really stems from this, this, this sort of longstanding view in the field that whenever people do something that is perceived as unusual mm. or non-normative, that it signifies a disorder or it signifies something unhealthy. Right. And the problem there is that we really haven't had the data to say that these things actually are unusual or that they're necessarily tied to, to negative outcomes. And so that was something I really wanted to explore and dive into in the book, which is just how common are various sexual fantasies and interests. And then what are the implications when people share those fantasies with the partner and then go further and act on them? I feel like one of the projects of the book is sort of differentiating the self-regard that people might have about being weird as opposed to being normal and defining normal as how common versus unusual is something. Because when people say, is it, when people say to me, is it weird that I want to lick feet or whatever? It's like, well, are you asking me, do a lot of people want to lick feet? Do a lot of people lick feet? Or do a lot of people get their feet licked? Like, you know, I don't have those numbers in front of me, although now I do because <laughs> of your book, right? But, you know, so sometimes what they want to know is, Am I alone? Am I the only one? How likely is it going to be that I'm going to find a partner who is open to this or, or into this or has even heard of it? But then there's also this this like moral or like self-shaming element of like, even if it is really common, then I still think that it's weird. Like being queer is very common, but some people are, who have internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia or whatever aren't necessarily comforted by the fact that there are lots of other queer people out there, right? Like right. they think that there's something inherently wrong with it. And so now, you know, because of your project, now we have more data to at least say to people, this is how common we can see that this is and then maybe start to parse that out. Yeah, and I think... A lot of times when people are asking, is this normal? What they want to know is just, is it common? The, the issue of is it healthy, unhealthy, moral, immoral is a totally separate thing. And, yeah. you know, I don't really wade into that because I yeah. think different people have different views on these things and, and that's okay. Um, but with respect to is it common, I asked people with respect to their favorite fantasy of all time, how many other people in the population do you think have this fantasy? Interesting. And what I see is that people consistently underestimate how popular they think it is. And there's also a correlation where the rarer people think their fantasy is, the more shame and guilt and embarrassment they have. So there's a lot that we can do when we try to, to normalize fantasies by saying, you know, hey, you're not alone in having this. That can help and go a long way toward reducing that shame. Do you think that it also reduces the thrill? <laughs> Um, I don't know that it necessarily reduces the thrill un unless people are sort of eroticizing their their shame in a way. And, and, and we know that some people get off on humiliation. You know, that can yeah. be a big thrill for some people. Um, I guess I would want more data to know whether <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> normalizing it this does This is what that. I love about talking to you. <laughs> 
I, I don't, I, yeah, I, I hate to like uh, just venture out and say, yes, it does this versus that if I don't have a data point to support it. Cool. Well, something for your further research. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for the perfect gift this holiday season? Of course you are. Whether you're shopping for a partner, a new date, or a friend who needs a little extra self-care, the Pleasure Chest has got it all wrapped up for you. Not sure what to get? Try a specially curated Pleasure Chest kit. There's kits for blowjobs, bondage, booty basics, and so much more. From December 1st to December 31st of 2018, all purchases over $100 at the Pleasure Chest qualify for a gift voucher. So when you spend $100, you get a $15 gift card. When you spend $150, you get a $25 gift card. Plus, free shipping on all orders through December 21st. This offer is not valid with any other offer or discount. It's valid on in-store purchases in New York City, LA, and Chicago, under $1,000, and online purchases at pleasurechest.com for under $250. You could also always take advantage of these deals to get yourself some new toys after dealing with so much holiday nonsense. To find out more about this and other giving and receiving news, follow Pleasure Chest on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or visit pleasurechest.com. All right, now back to the show. So so let's go back to BDSM. What, what are some messages about BDSM that you found from your study that you really want to put out there into the world? Maybe some myths that you want to bust about it. <laughs> so one is that it's it's super common. Yeah. And that most of the people who act on it report positive experiences doing it. Mm-hmm. Women in general, self-identified women, reported being more interested in BDSM than men. Uh, also, people who identified as gender non-binary, I didn't get into that a whole lot in the book, but they were even more interested in BDSM. Uh, so, so there are some links to to gender identity. It does vary depending on what specific BDSM acts you're talking about. Mm. For example, women were uh, less interested in dominance than men were, mm. but when in, be- I, in being dominant themselves? In Yeah, just in terms of how often they fantasized about having a dominant role. Um, women fantasized more about submission and masochism than men did, and men fantasized more about dominance. Uh, but something was interesting when I looked at so how dominant are you in, in your real life? And then, uh, you know, what what is it you're fantasizing about? And I saw that men and women, there, there was a difference where they often wanted to break free of their their typical role. So if if a woman was more submissive in her real life, she often fantasized about being a little more dominant. And if mm. a man was more dominant in, in his sexual role, he often fantasized about being a little submissive. So that's kind of people want to mix it up and do something different. So you're saying that they're that both men and women often fantasize about the inverse of how they are in their 
daily lives. Not in terms of their daily lives, but in, just in terms of their general sex life. Oh, I see. Right? Oh. So not related to their broader social power kind of thing. That's okay. So that's interesting. So it's not necessarily the the archetype of the CEO who wants to be a slave, but more like somebody who is that if somebody is tends to play the more dominant role in their sex life, then they fantasize about the inverse role. Right. And I think that ultimately stems from broader cultural gender roles we have where men are expected to be more dominant, women are expected to be more submissive. And I think when people are adopting roles that they feel like they should be doing rather than maybe feeling free to experiment and explore and do different things, then they're, they're starting to eroticize, you know, what would it be like to, to do something different, to break free? Totally. Let's come back to attraction and repulsion, because I was really interested in what's the relationship between attraction and repulsion? <laughs> Why do we sometimes eroticize things that we also feel repulsed by or that we know we've been told that society in general or that we've seen from experience that most people express revulsion about. So there's something really interesting that happens when people become sexually aroused, which is that their disgust response lessens. Things that they would otherwise see as as gross or disgusting become more appealing. And Mm. there's evidence for both men and women that that shows that this happens. For example, there's a study with men where they put them in a private room with a laptop and asked them to to masturbate to the brink of orgasm. So they were just edging. And then they were rating how attractive they found lots of things that people would consider to be disgusting, like watching somebody else urinate. And um, they also had men do this in a condition where they weren't masturbating. And, And what they found was that when guys were aroused, they rated almost everything as more attractive and desirable compared to when they were just in this cold, calm, unaroused state. Mm. Uh, We see it too with women where if they watch a sexually arousing video uh, versus watch an unarousing nature video and then they're asked to do disgusting tasks like stick their finger in a bowl full of used condoms and touch each one individually. Um, <laughs> obviously, in the study, they weren't used condoms, but they were made to look like used It's like condoms. a haunted house. Yeah. yeah. It's like a bowl of grapes that's eyeballs. Yes, right. yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, so, or when you, put a, you have a blindfold on and it's a bowl of cold spaghetti and you have to, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> Guts, brains. Yes, right. exactly. Uh, so, so what they find is that women are more willing to engage in a variety of these disgusting tasks when they've just watched something arousing. So it's just something about being in the state of arousal lowers our disgust. And scientists think there might be an evolutionary reason for it because sex can be a little messy yeah. at times. And so maybe it's it's good. It's adaptive that disgust lowers so that, you know, we don't get turned off and we complete the complete the act. And now my pro dom brain is just thinking about like getting people really turned on and then conditioning them by showing them really disgusting things and then making it so that now they they fetishize those disgusting things. But anyway, of course, I would do that uh, ethically and consensually. Of course. Uh, <laughs> and so would a lot of people that I know are listening to this show right now. You know who you are. Anything else about that that you found about fantasies and the role of repulsion or the like social idea of what is disgusting that you found from your studies that you talk about in the book? So I collected so much data that I wasn't able to get into everything that maybe I wanted to in the book. I was limited by word counts with my publisher and other things like that. But um, I've been going back and diving into the data and then I publish it in the form of blog posts and other things when I've, you know, just 
say, hey, I had this idea and I looked at something interesting. So I have looked at body fluid fetishes more more generally. Oh, and, cool. Uh, you know, I asked people about attraction to to breast milk, urine, oh, yeah. um, blood, all, you know. All anything, fluids we've all covered fluids. on this show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you see that, you know, when it comes to fluids, uh, urine and breast milk are the the sort of more popular, more common ones. And and I think people fantasize about them a little more than the average person might might expect. Uh, you know, the number of men, self-identified men who fantasized about breast milk is, you know, about one in 10 or so. So it's wow. it's, it's more common than, than you would expect. That's not to say that one in 10 men have a breast milk fetish, uh, just that they've had an arousing fantasy about it at some point. So what's the difference between a fantasy and a fetish? <laughs> it's a great question. So a fantasy is, is just a mentally, it's a mental thing thought or image that turns you on Mm. and it can happen just once or it can happen many many times a fetish could be a fantasy Mm. but a fantasy is not necessarily a fetish because fetishes are something where you kind of oftentimes need that object or or stimulus around in order to feel arousal and so if it's not present you might have a harder time staying aroused or, or reaching orgasm so so fetishes tend to be based on much more recurrent fantasies. Cool. How can science help us get what we want <laughs> from sex? So what science can do, what this research that I conducted can do is to tell us a bit about which fantasies tend to work out better than others and and why that yeah. might be the case and also who tends to have better experiences and what are the the sort of things that you can do to promote a better experience if you were going to share your fantasy with a partner or go the extra mile and and act on it because we really haven't had any data on this yeah totally almost all the scientific research on sex fantasies is focused on it as a solitary experience you huh. know, it's an image you have in your head while you're masturbating or maybe while you're having sex with a partner and that's it yeah but what happens when people share it or act on it and so what I find is that most people are reporting positive experiences, cool. sharing and acting on it. Cool. But it, but it varies. It depends on the fantasy. And, and group sex is one area where people report the least positive experiences. In sharing the fantasy or in living out the fantasy? And that's where it starts to get a little bit more complex because it depends on the individuals. Okay. So heterosexually identified women report the least positive experiences acting on group sex. Huh. But men who identify as anything other than heterosexual report the best experiences. Mm. So when you're talking about men and women in in heterosexual relationships and in acting on group sex, I think what's going on there is that they have very different expectations for what they want the gender composition of that, say, threesome to be and who's going to be the center of attention Uh, versus if you're talking about like gay men who are kind of getting together in a group, it, you know, maybe they're more on the same page about kind of what they want to happen and who's going to do what. Fascinating. But other kinds of fantasies when people share them and act on them, they tend to have more positive results. Right. And, and, and one that I thought was really interesting was the, the sort of non-monogamy fantasies where people were swinging or cuckolding, which is, you know, when one person is watching their partner have sex with somebody else uh, or uh, open relationships, polyamory. What I found was that when people shared these fantasies and when they acted on them, they were largely reporting really positive experiences and outcomes, saying it was even better than they expected and that it improved their relationship. That's interesting. So I would I would group group sex 
under a similar category in, in certain circumstances with polyamory and non-monogamy or cuckolding. Mm-hmm. But my analysis of the data that you're sharing is that sh- is that sharing group sex or non-monogamous fantasies and also acting on them work better when there's a structure mm-hmm. in place for what the dynamics and roles are of the people in the group and also how to communicate about what your desires are and what's working and not working. Exactly. And that's why I make the distinction in the data between the multi-partner activities versus the non-monogamous relationship activities. Because the multi-partner I'm talking about, you've got lots of people in bed or in a room at the same time having a shared experience together. Yeah. Uh, the non-monogamy fantasies I'm talking more about, you're you're in some kind of open relationship. And, and like you said, there's some structure associated yeah. with it. Yeah. I think with the group encounters, lots of people just don't have a script for right. what they're supposed to do. And, and so they end up in that situation and it, there's uncertainty. Or maybe if they do it with a partner, then they suddenly find that they're jealous when their partner expresses interest in or gets attention from someone else or they're feeling left out because they didn't communicate beforehand. Also, I mean, something that I talk to people in my coaching practice about a lot, folks who are curious about going to sex parties or who have had experience going to sex parties and felt very inhibited when they were there, felt very nervous when they were there, is there's such an intense wave upon wave of social taboos when you're in any kind of group sex or group play scenario. And I can imagine that just how totally overwhelming that would be would sort of cross wires with your arousal and just, yeah, be be really overwhelming. So it seems like the thing that is so great about these structures is that they give they give you space to ease into it they give you space to advocate for what you really want and they give you a clear a clearer idea of like i am here to do x i expect this is what i would like this is what i expect from what i expect from you is why yeah and i also think with the the group encounters where it's multiple people at the same time there's also a lot of uncertainty around the issue of consent and and how do you how do you navigate consent in an orgy Right. Uh, this was something I've, I've I've started writing about recently because there's also no research on that. You know, <laughs> how does it work? How do you communicate and convey consent? And and different people might have different comfort levels. So I, I think there's more that we can do with science there to say how can we more effectively promote consent in, 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 say, group settings. And something I've written about and I've heard other people talk about is, you know, maybe you have color-coded LED bracelets that, yeah. you know, can can be green, red, or, or yellow. And, and that can indicate sort of, you know, you need to stop and ask me first versus, you know, I'm down for whatever. Uh, and, 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 that, and, and you could also change the color in the midst of the encounter. Like mm-hmm. if you're like engaged in an experience, you're really enjoying it, you don't want to be interrupted, right? Yeah. So, so I think there are ways that we could, you know, kind of study this and explore it and maybe help promote better encounters. Well, I mean, it also seems like if we can figure out how to do that in orgies, maybe we can figure out how to do it in larger society. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's another thing. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting to talk about consent in group sex because all we ever talk about consent with is two-person sex. Totally. So we need to have a, an even broader discussion. But yeah, we got to figure out how it works with even just two people. Cause Didn't you, don't you say something in the book about how if you want to understand a complex system, you disrupt it? <laughs> so I feel, I feel like... Like disrupt, 
an or, like an orgy is sort of like a like a chaos monster, you know. <laughs> so if you, if you like disrupt an orgy, <laughs> then you can like learn maybe how yeah things like consent work or yeah. things like desire work or things like fluidity of attraction mm-hmm. might work. Yeah, and you know, and there may be things that we could learn from group sex that we could apply to two-person sex, or things that we can learn from consensually non-monogamous relationships that we can apply in monogamous relationships. Absolutely, totally agree. Yeah, it makes me think about the tension that we are experiencing. That well, that we've been, we've always been experiencing, but that we're having a larger, unprecedented cultural conversation about about this tension between the importance of enthusiastic consent versus the the sense that the something about the mystery of seduction is lost when when we put more onus on one than on the other and i think that that is true at an orgy right like if you have an I, i'll tell you i've totally been to orgies where everyone is like may I please place this finger on you? No? Well, thank you so much. And it's just like, ugh, can we just, can we all go for it? You know, but then it's like, well, that's not, do what I say, not what I do. I don't know. It's, I think we're all trying to figure that out right now. I wonder, is there anything from your studies about how people want to, I mean, even you do talk about consensual non-consent and fantasies of being taken or dominated. Some people might call rape fantasies, um, but you're very careful to talk about how a lot of the time people are clear to define, like, I actually, in my fantasy, I actually do want it, but it's the sort of pageantry of Mm. non-consent. Do you think that there are things that we can learn from those fantasies that we can apply to this huge thorny mess of how people engage with sexual consent in our society. And, you know, and I think we can look at BDSM practitioners as one model of that because they've kind of figured out how to navigate those, those issues of consent without it always being so explicitly stated ongoing throughout the event. You know, yeah. there's a safe word. Yeah. And so you just communicate when something goes beyond your, your comfort zone. And I think safe words are something that we tend to associate with BDSM, but could be so useful when people are acting out any kind of, of sexual fantasy. And totally. It's, and it's just having that, that escape or exit strategy in place and in having all the partners involved being willing to respect when that happens. Totally. Absolutely. The role that more open communication can play in people's sex lives. Can you just speak to that? So a lot of us aren't communicating about our fantasies or desires. I I find that about half of people have shared their favorite fantasy of all time with a partner, but you got a lot of people who who clearly haven't. And what I find is that the people who have shared their fantasies are the happiest in their relationships. They're the most sexually satisfied. Uh, So so there are lots of benefits we can obtain by by just communicating more openly about our desires. And the the more that we just hang on to them, keep them to ourselves, it it just feeds those feelings of of shame and, and guilt and insecurity security and anxiety. And, you know, the other thing too, is that with all of this shame that we feel about our desires, when we're not communicating about it, uh, it creates broader social uh, anxiety about those desires. Totally. Right? And then people can, can weaponize those desires against us. You know, we see that in child custody cases, divorce proceedings, totally. people who are into BDSM and polyamory sometimes have their, their sexual practices held against them. And that has these 
horrible implications for their for their family life, for their work, their livelihood. And you know, by communicating more about our desires, reducing that that shame, we can prevent this this thing, this weaponization of desire that we see happening. Totally, I totally agree. And the science uh, backs us up. Yep. <laughs> One fantasy that I learned about in the process of doing this book, and I, and I mentioned this briefly in it, was the the human cow fantasy. Yes, and, a recent a recent episode uh, that we had, uh, Maxine Holloway talked about. Uh, she actually just gave birth, so we, I interviewed her when she was six months pregnant, and she talked about having a who cow fetish and then embodying her fantasy through actually being pregnant and uh, giving birth. And I had never heard of it. Yeah. So it's something new under the sun. So yeah. I get we both hadn't encountered it. it right. The, the hookah fetishists need to like come out of the yeah. um, out of pasture <laughs> 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 and, you know, speak their truth. Because if we haven't heard about it, like, my God, you know, so. Yeah. So I, I had one person who wrote about this as their favorite fantasy of all time. And um Subsequently, I discovered there's a whole porn genre totally. devoted to it. And and so that was a really big learning experience for me. And it's such a fascinating fantasy because it combines so many things all at once. You know, there's sort of this changing into another be- being or creature in yeah. some ways. Uh, so, so there's that element. There's also the erotic lactation element. So yes. there's, there's sort of that fetishistic mm-hmm. aspect. But then there's also uh, the, sort of this forced sex element to yes. it. and sometimes bondage and, and so forth. So it, it combines so many things all into one that I just think it's really interesting to to sit there and analyze, you know, what is what does this fantasy mean? Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> um I, I think in a lot of ways it it just is a unique expression of, of BDSM desires because that yeah. seems to be sort of the predominant theme that's involved there. Yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, kind of about psychological escape because you're, you're sort of becoming this, this object for, totally. for others to use. And so it, it, with a lot of BDSM, it, the appeal of it for many people is just sort of the escape from self-awareness and it's just, Oh, that's beautifully put. Yeah. And it just allows you to to kind of get lost and enjoy the sensations. And so I think that's ultimately what it's about. There's nothing weird about it. It just, it strikes people as unusual when you talk about human cow, but you know, <laughs> it, it's really just a creative expression of, I think, broader desires that we have in, in escaping reality. Yeah. And, and it seems also like of all the ways of taking a break from, you know, we talk about escapism tends to have like a negative connotation, right? But like, there's all kinds of ways that we like it's actually quite good for us to take a break from self-awareness yeah. and reality yeah. and society i mean we you know sleeping yoga exercising watching movies like sports i'm told are very good for escaping and yet when it comes to sex there's all this moral panic about it being escapism from real life rather than really healthy cathartic relief from the pressures of real life Mm -hmm. and there are so many ways to 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 kind of decrease that that self-awareness i think you know going the bdsm route is one way another is to to practice mindfulness where you really just focus on being present and you see that for other people that that works really well too it's just it's all about getting out of your head and finding a way to focus on the sensations enjoy the moment cool any other fetishes or fantasies that are 
that you're just really enjoying talking about because of what you learned about them through the study? <laughs> I, I mean, just in terms of some other f- general findings that I thought were interesting, yeah. I thought it was really interesting to explore the links between uh, prior sexual victimization mm. and what people's fantasies were. I had been led to believe in a lot of previous research that, for example, there was no link between victimization and fantasies about BDSM. Um, but I found that there was a link there. And I think the difference is that in the previous research, they were looking at BDSM practitioners, people who were actively involved in the scene, whereas I was looking at the fantasy. And so, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at something different there. So that might explain the difference. But th- there, there does seem to be this link where a lot of people who have gone through sexual trauma are fantasizing about BDSM. And I think what that tells us is that BDSM might actually be this therapeutic yeah. thing that people do a way of, of sometimes working through trauma. Um, And so it's not to say that everybody who is into BDSM has had trauma, just that... Or that everybody that has trauma is into BDSM. Right. Because I think people work through trauma in different ways. I also see people who are sexually victimized uh, have more fantasies about romantic, emotional sex, you know, and intimacy. Mm. Uh, So for some people, it's more about affirming the self as a way that they find to to cope with that trauma. So I I think it's interesting how flexible we are and how different people adopt different strategies for for coping with trauma and their fantasies are one way that they do that. Did you draw any connections between past, like a history of sexual trauma and the experiences that people had in sharing their fantasies or how they felt after they lived them out? That's a really good question. And that's something I did not, I have not explored that yet. So well, I'm going to have to have that one for free. Yeah. I'm <laughs> going to have to dig into that. The, the more I find that the more I go and I talk about this data, I, I get so many great ideas from people, things that I just didn't think to explore. Well, it's a cool project writing a book because especially with the way that media works now this is also like more of an opportunity to explore because you can't put everything in the book absolutely i I spent the last two weekends giving i lectured for 14 hours over two days in denver and in austin to groups of sex therapists about the science of sex fantasies and they had some really fascinating insights and they could talk to me a bit about you know what their patients experiences are like with with fantasies the concerns that they're bringing in and i got some some really good ideas there cool yeah yeah the thing about the relationship between past trauma and not only people's fantasies, but their experiences with their fantasies would would really be interesting to me also in particular with folks who have a a history of sexual trauma and not only who then have an interest in BDSM or identification with BDSM, but also people who choose to do sex work, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a very good example of uh, broad, lazy correlation being being assumed to be causation, right? That when people... They hear a story about a porn star who was molested as a child and they're like, well, that there's a like, so you have daddy issues. So that's it. That's why you're a porn star. Now I understand that. Right. So but if we had better data about that and but studies that were not done with uh, confirmation bias or pathologizing in mind, then we might be able to say, like, just because this correlation is there doesn't mean that 
that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Right. And, you know, there, there is a study that you might be really interested in. It's, it's a test of what they call the damaged goods hypothesis, mm. where they were looking specifically at women who appear in pornography. And they, they got a matched sample of, of women who were not in porn. Yeah. And they compared them in terms of their history of, uh, say, child sexual victimization and, yeah. and various other factors. And for the most part, they didn't find any support for this idea that porn stars are, are damaged goods and that they, they didn't have higher rates of, of victimization. So there is, what you say, a lot of confirmation bias that goes on. And that's why you see a lot of studies coming out where, uh, you know, they say totally different things. It, yeah. It's because there, there, there is some politics, some agenda that often goes on there. So you really need to be able to, to slice through that and, and look for the data that provides the, the, the sort of truest test. So, Justin, what do you hope people take away from reading your book? A few things. One is that, you know, your fantasies are probably a heck of a lot more common than Mm. you think they are. So you're not alone in having them and you shouldn't be ashamed. You also shouldn't run away from your fantasies, you Mm. know, accept them as, as part of who you are. And also understand that there's a lot to potentially be gained if you were to share and maybe act on some of those fantasies. It's not to say that you necessarily should uh, share and act on every and all fantasy that you Or that you it have. will always go the way that you want it to. Right. Understand yeah. that if you're going to act on it, that there's a lot of uncertainty yeah. and that when people try to predict their future emotional states, we, we suck at it. You know, we're, we're, we're not very <laughs> That's good. Interesting. Yeah, we, we, we tend to overestimate our positive responses and overestimate our negative responses to situations. So Fascinating. It, it cuts both ways. Huh. The reality is we just we can't just psychologically transport us ourselves right now into that situation and say, oh, this is how I'm going to feel because you just don't know what's going to happen between now and then. That really makes me think about how people react to feelings of jealousy mm-hmm. that that maybe that has to do with the expect the like over expectation that you're going to that you think that you know how you're going to feel when something happens and then jealousy rears its green ugly head and you're like no but i predicted that i wouldn't feel that way so now i'm extra upset right i know and so actually something I just learned about recently at this uh, workshop I was teaching last week, I was asking sex therapists for their advice on what books they think are good and useful, aside from mine, uh, for, <laughs> for people to read. Um, but there was something recommended called the Jealousy Workbook. Oh, and cool. so it's a way where people can try and work through their their jealous responses or reactions or how they might react in certain situations. And so that could, if, if people are grappling with jealousy issues and practicing consensual non-monogamy, that, that could be a useful resource for them. Okay. One last question along these lines. What advice would you have for therapists, sex therapists, relationship therapists, and really just broadly medical professionals who are dealing with our physical and emotional well-being? What advice would you have for them about how to engage with like best care practices for patients who are talking about their sexuality and specifically their fantasies? One is to get some continuing education that Mm. focuses specifically on sex because sex 
training opportunities are rare to non-existent in a lot of medical schools and in a lot of uh, graduate school programs in psychology and, and, and counseling. You what know, are we going to do about that? We need to change it. And, yeah. you know, I worked in a counseling psychology PhD program for more than three years. We had one class on sex. What? So, but seriously, not to like uh, overlay another question, but like what, what can like an everyday citizen do to help change that landscape because it's effect, it, It's like a feedback loop, right? It affects all of us. Right. So, uh, I mean, it's easier to talk about kind of what to do about sex education in, in schools at the, uh, you know, sort of elementary, not elementary, but, you know. Um, yeah, the, yeah, middle, middle, middle school. school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because that's governed age on the appro- Age yes. appropriate, yeah. The, all of that sex education is governed at the local level. And yeah. you as a, a parent or citizen, just get involved in your local school board because yeah. you can change that. Yeah. Because the people who are running the school boards are uh, people who largely support the abstinence approach and you just need to to represent yourself there. Yeah. Uh, In terms of, you know, what we can do with medical schools and, and PhD programs and so forth, it's if you're a student and you're going into it, demand it, you know, ask for, say, there's interest here. We want to learn more about this. Uh, also, if you're a patient, you know, talk to your doctor about it and, and make it clear how this is an important issue, how it's affecting you and, and hope that they're going to start educating themselves. Uh, so we have our work cut out for us in terms of creating that. But uh, something I've been doing is I, I've been participating in these continuing education programs for medical providers to try and give them this this sex education. Uh, because and, and this goes back to your question about advice. A big piece of my advice to them is to check their biases at the door, yeah, and and to recognize that a lot of the things they think are unusual are actually pretty common. Uh, to to check monogamous assumptions they have, mm. you know, so that they're not overlaying their ideal for a relationship onto mm. their patients, uh, and and just getting more acquainted with with the science in the area. Getting more acquainted with the science <laughs> or, is is what. <laughs> no, go ahead. Or getting intimate with it. What, you know, whatever you want to <laughs> analogy you want to use there. <laughs> getting in bed with it. Yes. Getting in the dungeon with it. Justin, it is so nice to see you again and talk to you. And I love the book, and I highly recommend it for all people. And what's next for you? I'm working on another book project, but I can't disclose the details of it just yet. Cool, cool. Always uh, exciting. Yeah, but also just kind of going out and speaking around the country and educating people about sex and sexual desire. So if people want to find out more about your work, how would they do that? Uh, go to my website. It's called Sex and Psychology. You can get to it at sexandpsychology.com. Nice get on that URL. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I bought it a little while ago, uh, but uh, it has a list of uh, my public speaking opportunities. And then also I, I run a blog on there. So cool. three times a week I'm blogging about the latest sex science, translating it in a way that is interesting and engaging. And sometimes I talk about other data from the book that I dove into. Like, for example, I wrote about sex robots recently yes. and fantasies about them. So. Oh, my God. I ugh, Okay, next time we'll talk <laughs> more about sex robots because it's my it's an obsession, you might say. Thank you so much for coming in today and good luck with the rest of your tour. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was super fun.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.